Good morning. Good morning. This morning's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within that city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The Sodom and Gomorrah account. And we're, we're getting into the thick of the Sodom and Gomorrah account in Genesis. We've, we've heard rumors of Sodom and Gomorrah earlier on in Abraham's story through his nephew Lot, who moved there. And now we're getting into the thick of it, and next week we'll continue as the plot thickens and intensifies. But the Sodom and Gomorrah account, it really stands out in the Old Testament as one of those places where when, when people suppose that the God of the Bible is allegedly a God full of judgment and wrath and anger, they think of Sodom and Gomorrah. But if you think that the God of the Bible is just angry and just zealous and just full of wrath and vengeance, you're mistaken. Actually, this... This is really interesting because what Abraham discovers is that God takes a very slow and deliberate and reasoned approach to his justice. Abraham discovers God's true nature and what God's plans are. 
Now, some people think, well, why can't God just overlook all sin, ignore it, and just forgive and save everybody? Why does God have to care about justice and vengeance and wrath? Why can't he just overlook everything that everybody's ever done? That would be fair, is what people think. Actually, what would be fair if you read the Bible and you discover the depths of brokenness and rebellion that are in the human heart, what you discover would actually be fair is if God would just wipe everybody out. But he doesn't do that. He could because he's just. But he doesn't wipe everybody out. He offers a way. He offers mercy. He's just, but he's merciful. He's not just one or the other. Actually, by faith, just like Abraham is now walking with God, learning more about this God who has called him, by faith, we learn that God is just and merciful. And we can reconcile those two ideas. Now, God's justice, will start there. God's justice is critical. If you're going to understand the God of the Bible, if you're going to understand biblical faith and Christianity and grow in it, you have to understand that God is just. We have to start there. The Bible refers to Abraham. Have you ever heard this? The Bible refers to Abraham as God's friend. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? The creator of the universe and just puny little people like me and Abraham. And nonetheless, the Bible in Isaiah chapter 41 and even James in James chapter 2 refers to Abraham as God's friend. Why is that? Why would the creator call one of us his, well, you know about yourself, and you know what people are like. Why would the Creator call somebody his friend? Well, we begin to understand here in this account, in this dialogue between the Lord and Abraham. Look at verses 18 and 19. The Lord, now remember, Abraham sees three, three men appear to him at his house, and he and Sarah serve them. And what we discover is that two of them are angels, and one is the Lord. It's the Lord appearing to Abraham, and, and so that's, that's the context. Uh, now the two men decide to go on. The angels move forward to Sodom and Gomorrah, but the Lord stays behind, and Abraham engages in a conversation with the Lord. And the Lord, but the Lord, but before Abraham opens his mouth, he hears the Lord say this, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So here you see God, like a friend, confiding in Abraham. His friends share information. Because of trust, friends communicate the depths of their heart to one another. And so God reveals to Abraham, he confides in Abraham... And reveals his plan. And here are the details of the plan. This is what God is about to do. Verses 20 and 21. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether. According to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And in this plan, as God reveals to Abraham what he's about to do. Abraham learns that God is just. 
What's justice? What do you think? Really quick, we don't have a lot of time. What do you think? What's justice? If somebody asked you, how would you describe it? Any, any ideas? What's justice? Yeah. Uh, what's right? What's right? Any other thing? Justice is what's right. Anything else? Being held accountable. Being held accountable is justice, okay? Maybe one or two other thoughts? Yeah. Okay, getting what you deserve. It was thousands of years ago, Plato, the philosopher, basically said that justice is giving everybody what is due them. If everybody in society is given their due without anybody taking advantage of one another by robbing them of what is their due, you have justice. The problem with a secular concept of justice, however, because if you ask people on the street, they'll all say, well, yeah, justice is important. Justice is, is a great virtue. Well, the problem with a secular understanding of justice is what standard are you going to use by which you will give everybody their due? What standard are you going to use? If everybody is due something, deserves something, how do you judge? Especially if humanity, if we are advanced animals, the product of cosmic accident and millions of years of natural selection, then how do we agree upon a standard by which everyone is given what she or he is due? As a matter of fact, most injustice comes about because societies and individuals and families... Groups of people can't agree on the standard by which everybody should be judged according to what he or she has done and deserves. Now, biblically speaking, justice is this, that everyone does receive what is due them, but according to God's standards. And one of the first things we learn in the Bible is that humanity is created in God's image. It doesn't matter how much of a wretch somebody is, they are created in the image of God. And that becomes God's standard for all justice. For instance, in Genesis chapter 9, you know, after Noah and, his, Noah and his family are saved and spared and they get off of the boat, and God says to them, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man. In his own image. Psalm 146 says this. That God executes justice for the oppressed. That God gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. God is a God who acts justly. He gives those who are wicked and misbehave what they justly deserve. He gives those who are innocent and oppressed the relief that they justly deserve. And he then asks his creatures, humanity, to do likewise. And so in Isaiah chapter 1, uh, God through the prophet Isaiah is, is indicting Israel for not acting justly. And he says to them in Isaiah 1 verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause, because who in the world is more needy and more taken advantage of than people who aren't protected? And in the ancient terms, they were aliens and fatherless people 
and widows. Just as three prime examples. So God holds accountable those who do not give others their due. And he holds accountable those who do not give him his due. His justice not only applies to how we treat one another, it applies especially and primarily to how we treat him. Now it's tempting, back to what I mentioned earlier, it's, it's tempting to believe in, in a God who just overlooks sin. You've heard, people, uh, you've heard people say, why did God have to send his son to die on a cross? Why can't he just forgive everybody? Why can't he just overlook all the offenses and wickedness and, and sin and oppression and injustice that have taken place? But you know, that's no God at all, is it? If nobody cares about justice, if we don't have a God that is, that is concerned that everyone, including him, that everyone receives their due, who is going to defend those who cannot defend themselves? Who is going to put any type of a check on human injustice? That's, that is not the kind of God that we need. Think of it this way. Let's say, because I know some of you can relate to this, let's say you spend most of your day cooking an elaborate, delicious meal. You are so excited about the end of the day because this thing, this creation that you're making is going to taste delicious, it's going to look great, it's going to smell good, but the reason you're really excited is because of the reason why you're making this meal. Love. You are making this meal not just out of obligation, you're making it out of love. Now how would you feel not like this would ever happen. But how would you feel if people came home and walked into your kitchen and said, Ugh, that looks miserable, it stinks, and I'm not going to eat it. I'm making a sandwich. And then take the knife and the fork and just scrape your precious, wonderful meal, made and crafted and conceived in love, just scrape it right out into the trash. You would be right. You would be right to be incensed that such a creation of diligence and care and thought and generosity, born out of love, was disregarded, was scorned, and thrown in the trash. We would all say, absolutely right. I am right to be frustrated. I am right to be incensed at such a terrible thing. But do we deny our Creator the right to be incensed? over the mess we've made of his planet and the way we've treated one another. We deny our creator the right to be incensed that what he has designed in love for his glory and for our enjoyment, enjoyment is disregarded, is scorned, and thrown into the trash. We actually need a God who is incensed over what is wrong in the world over how we treat him, over how we treat one another. But we need a God who is not only incensed, right? We need a God who is just in how he doles out justice. When God dishes out justice, he is even just in how he does it. And that's what we discover in what God says. I've heard that things are pretty bad in Sodom and Gomorrah, and we'll find out what that means next week when we look at Genesis chapter 19. But I've heard, and if it's true, I'm going to go and find out. 
and I'm bringing these two guys along with me, and we're going to look at this objectively. You find out later in the Law of Moses that if you're going to convict somebody of something they've done, you had better have at least two witnesses. And what do you discover? Two angels go down into Sodom. And so the scholar Bruce Waldke, he's an Old Testament scholar, he has a commentary on Genesis, he says this, It is now established that God's judgment is just. The Lord investigates the accusation thoroughly. He ensures two objective witnesses. He involves the faithful in his judgment, that's Abraham. He displays active compassion for the suffering and prioritizes divine mercy over indignant wrath. That's how the God of the Bible dispenses justice. Not as a anger-blind, zealot bigot, but as a thoughtful, patient, reasonable judge. So why do we sing? Why do we sing every Sunday? Where does the joy in being a Christian I hope, I hope that as you're growing in your faith, you have experienced joy. Where does the joy that brings forth the singing come from? Where does the gratitude come from? The gratitude that, that allows us to be generous with our lives and with our resources and with our time. Where does the joy and the gratitude and the generosity and the worship all come from? Just that God is just? Of course not. You know it doesn't just come from the fact that you know your creator is just. Because if he was only just, you wouldn't be excited right now. But God is merciful. His mercy is equally critical. If you want to know the God of the Bible, you need to know, yes, that he's just. And you need to know and you need to explain graciously to people who are questioning you, if you're a Christian about this, that he's not only just, but he's merciful. What's mercy? I'll ask you again. What is mercy? Quick, simple definition. So justice is giving everybody their due according to God's standards of what is right. What's mercy? I'm sorry? Ah, not giving them what they're due. Especially if, if what they're due is punishment, right? And, condom, and accountability, not bringing that accountability down upon them. Good. That's great. That's a great concept of what mercy is. Any other ideas? What's mercy? Okay, well, well, we'll start there. Mercy, in a broad sense, I mean this in, um, in a spiritual sense concerning the salvation that the Bible talks about, and also in a social sense concerning the good deeds that come out of our joy uh, that are important in the Bible as well. Mercy is this relief from the burdens of living in a fallen, broken world. In a general sense, mercy whether it's forgiveness or whether it's help with paying your electric bill. Mercy is relief, providing and receiving relief from the burdens of living in a fallen world, even if you're being self-inflicted. Whether, whether you're suffering from something that's been self-inflicted or whether you're suffering from something that's been inflicted upon you by others or by a system, mercy is relieving those burdens. And so in verse 23, and this is, I think, really what Abraham is getting at. He pleads with the Lord, 
Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? I know you've heard about that place, but what if there are some good people there who don't deserve accountability? Will you sweep away even the righteous with the wicked? So Abraham initiates this progression of very short, pointed questions. He says, okay, so Lord, what if, what if 50 righteous people are there? Now listen, little ancient cities, scholars believe, may have been populated by like 100 people or so. We're not talking 20 million people. We're not talking Mexico City and Tokyo and New York. We're talking Sodom and Gomorrah. Look, places like this maybe were filled with 100 inhabitants or so. And so some scholars believe 50 is significant. He starts with 50 as if to say, what if half of the people there don't deserve condemnation? Would you wipe them all out if half were righteous? And God said, no, I wouldn't do that. And so Abraham continues, what if, what if, what if 45, okay, 45 people. Would you wipe it out if 45 people remained in the city who were righteous? God says, no, I won't do that. Uh, okay, um, let me ask you another question. How about 40? 40? 40? I won't do that yet. 30. 30 righteous people left in the city. What would you do? No, I wouldn't condemn this. Okay, 20? 20. We're going all the way down, and he says, 10. 10 people. You know, this is like Abraham's, for those of you who are older, this is Abraham's impersonation of Columbo. You know, just uh, uh, one more question, please. And, and he goes, 10? What about 10 people? Now think about it. 10 people is what? Basically a family. Basically, a ha- look, if you've got a wife and kids and, and you've got some servants, 10 people is a household. Now who lives in Sodom? His nephew Lot. Of course he's thinking about his relative. I don't think that's the only thing he's thinking about because he doesn't start by saying, what about 10 people? He starts by saying, what about 50 people? Hmm? Now, what's he doing? Is he haggling God? You know, what, what can I get away with here to save my nephew? I don't think he's haggling God. Look, this is, this is a very, how am I going to explain this? Because look, the logical conclusion is what? He keeps going down and down, and then God ends the conversation at 10. But what's the logical progression of Abraham's inquiry? Would you spare the city? If one person were left, who would be righteous? Would you do that? He doesn't quite go there, right? Now, what's he doing? This is a very respectful, like theological inquiry. That's, that's, this, is, this is not, Abraham is not trying to pull anything over on the Lord. At least, hopefully, he's learned that by now. But he is curious. And so he begins this process. And maybe the best way to explain it is... Let's consider our own context, which is in Abe's. We're Westerners. We're Americans. And we have this thing called guilt. Western conception of guilt. Look, think about it this way. Don't blame me if I didn't do it. Have you said that before? Have you thought that before? Don't. I didn't do that. I didn't say that. What are you looking at me for? He did it. I'll give you an example. In 2007, Salvatore... I'll say it the way it sounds. Salvatore Lo Piccolo was arrested and condemned for murder and all sorts of crime, drug trafficking. He was the boss of all bosses in, in the Sicilian Mafia. 
Salvatore Lo Piccolo, 2007, arrested. It was all over the news, all over the world. I didn't care. He, he, that guy had my last name. I, I didn't do it. He's an ocean away. What do I care? I don't, I don't, shaming the name of Lo Piccolo, what do I care? I don't even know who the guy is. It didn't bother me at all. And actually, I would make a joke of it. I was so unconcerned that a Lo Piccolo, a, a notorious criminal, was arrested and it was, it was broadcast all over the planet. I was so unconcerned that I even started joking about it. So that when people would ask me, hey, did you see this in the news? He has your last name. Do you know him? You know, and I would start saying things like, I can't talk about it. <laughs> um, or, or you better watch out because I know, I know people. Okay? I was so unconcerned that I started laughing about the whole thing. And that, in a sense, is the concept of the way Western people think about guilt. If I didn't do it, you can't blame me for it. Well, in the East, it's kind of different because there's this thing called shame. The same year, 2007, a young Korean student in his early 20s massacred. He, he, he was solely responsible for that massacre at Virginia Tech. Remember? In 2007. The people of Korea were shocked and grief-stricken for something that somebody who was barely associated with them anymore on the other side of the planet did that had nothing to do with them. They were grief-stricken. The government, the Korean government made a statement. As a matter of fact, the New York Times recorded uh, an, elderly, an elderly Korean person said, and I'm quoting, I and all of South Korea want to apologize to all Americans about what happened. We don't, we don't necessarily think that way in the West. But I think Abraham understood that that's how certain societies and cultures work in his own as well. It was only centuries after Abraham when God said to Joshua, you can look at, find this in Joshua chapter 7, God said to Joshua, Israel has sinned against me. They've stolen. It was during a campaign against the city of Ai. The catch is this. God accused all Israel of sinning against him, but it was one guy. One guy and his family actually committed the act. But God said to Joshua, the whole nation has sinned against me. So understanding this concept of corporate identity, Abraham engages in a reverent inquiry with the Lord. 50? Okay. 45? Okay. 40? 30? 20? What about 10? And he could have maybe gone on if God hadn't ended the conversation. Abraham is asking the simple question, since one person can condemn an entire group of people by their actions, can one person vindicate an entire group of people? If one person can damn a society, can one person save that society? That's what he's getting at. And the amazing thing is this. God basically says, yes. Yes. Verse 31. For the sake of ten, I will not destroy him. And Abraham discovered what Psalm 103 joyfully declares. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, 
nor repay us according to our iniquities. It's interesting because God will not only hold oppressors accountable and the wicked accountable, but he will defend those who are oppressed and the righteous. He will defend them. Not only will he defend them, but this is what's amazing. For the sake of the righteous, he will even grant mercy to the wicked. Now, given the fact that God is just and merciful, the life of faith is a life of intercession. And what I mean by that is if you belong to the God of the Bible, if you're walking in faith with the God of the Bible, trusting Him and not yourself and not trusting the world, but trusting Him, like Abraham is, Abraham is learning how to do, your life is a life of intercession. Intercession means this, you go to God on behalf of other people and their needs. And you ask Him to do what's right for the sake of other people. Whether it's somebody in your home or where you work or in your school, a friend of yours or somebody you don't even know on the other side of the world, you, at, you say, God, would you please do what is right and just for the sake of other people? If you belong to the God of the Bible, you become an intercessor like Abraham is here. Remember, God's been telling him all along through you and your people, I'm going to bless the entire world. I'm going to bless all of humanity. Here's a very practical way. Abraham begins to bless. He intercedes. Because if you keep reading the Old Testament, it's very common for prophets like Moses and, and Elijah and Samuel to, in, to go to God and ask that God would be merciful to the people. But it's always for Israel. Be merciful to our people. Here, Abraham is asking God to be merciful to a wicked city. They don't deserve it. And he's still saying, would you be merciful? Even for the sake of a couple of righteous people, would you spare the entire city? And as we grow in faith, that becomes part of our mission. To intercede, to go to God and ask him to be just, yes. To correct the wrongs in society, to correct the wrongs in us. But also to be merciful to not give us, to not give people what they truly deserve, but to be gracious and to be slow. And it's, it's the idea behind Jesus. When, when, when people ask Jesus to teach them how to pray, one of the things he said to them, this is how you pray. This is one of the ways. You say to God, your kingdom come and your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we know from God's will that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. We start to ask God to do likewise in us, for us. Don't treat me like my sins deserve, but justly root out the depravity, the wickedness, the brokenness in me and, and, and the brokenness that comes out of me and affects other people. Do justly with that and give me mercy. And then you pray that for everybody in your life, especially for your enemies, especially for the people that you believe don't deserve your respect. And maybe even the people that you can't forgive. Intercessors, go to the Creator and say, since you are just and merciful, I am pleading with you, would you please do something about the state of our school? 
Would you please do something about the state of our conflict as a society or the conflict in my family? Would you please work? Are you ignorant of this? What I mean by that is, are you ignorant of God's ways? Are you ignorant of the fact that he's just and merciful and he can be both and is both at the same time? Now, how is it that Abraham became aware of God's ways? Because God made him a friend. Friends share with one another. Friends are not true friends, are not ignorant of one another's ways, of each other's intentions. So you've got to ask yourself, am I ignorant of God's ways? Or am I in denial? Maybe I've read or heard or been told, but am I in denial of God's ways? And it usually fleshes itself out if we're ignorant of who God is, or if we're in denial of who he is, it fleshes itself out in how we live our lives. And you can start seeing it in, in how you interact with people, for instance. If you're only focused on the justice of God, if that's all you think that's important, well, the way you handle yourself in relationships, especially when people disappoint you, the way you interact with people uh, that you oversee, uh, the way you handle your politics, all of it, everything in life, uh, you'll be legalistic, you'll tend towards being an unforgiving person, and you'll be self-righteous. You know what self-righteous is? It's judging yourself based on your own standards and not God's standards. Or maybe if, if you're just focused on the fact that God is all about mercy and love and forgiveness and not holding humanity accountable, if that's your bent, it'll come out in the way you live too because there's this word called license. And it's not the thing you get at the MVA. License in what you think you can get away with and what you want to get away with in this world as though God doesn't care about what you're doing with your life and what you're doing to the people around you and how your, your decisions and your behavior affects, by consequence, the people around you. You become licentious is a fancy way of saying it. You become an enabling person. You just enable people, enable people, enable people in the name of love, which isn't love at all. And you give into relativism, which ultimately means, ah, who, who really knows? We, we can't really judge what's right or wrong. There really is no standard. We each have to find a standard. Well, God help you. God help you if your standard is messed up. If your standard is just focused on your preference. If your standard is only focused on how you've been hurt in your life. God help you and God help the people around you. If you're just going to leave it up to yourself or if you're going to let people leave it up to themselves to determine what people deserve and what people have coming to them. Without friendship with this God, you cannot know him. And, and so your approach to him and what you tell people about him, what you think about him, and then how you live out your life as a result, it just mocks him. It's a, some of the most friendly, gentle, warm, fuzzy people can still mock God by, by holding up his mercy and wanting nothing to do with his justice. But we must be balanced because God is. Yeah? 
Now look, it's hard for people to reconcile these things. Mercy and justice and, and how can God be both? Another way of saying that is how can God hold people accountable and forgive them at the same time? If, you're in a, if you've ever been in, in, in a place of authority in your life, whether it's at work or in your house, how do you forgive people and hold them accountable at the same time? You know how difficult that is. So surely God can't do it. We got to pick. Either he's merciful or he's just. And that's kind of how, in a very simplistic way, that's kind of how we think. But no, he's both. He's both. And here's the resolution to it. God's justice unleashes his mercy. That's how it works. His justice gives way and makes his mercy possible. God's mercy is possible because his justice was poured out on one person. How does God forgive? How is it that he can be merciful while he's just? It's because he took his justice and he poured it out on his son, Jesus who willingly received it and took it. You want to know why it's possible that God can give you mercy and remain just? Because he he poured that justice out on himself. So his justice is upheld and he's able now to be merciful to you because somebody took the just sentence that you deserve. Somebody took what was due to you. We read this earlier. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5 said, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Abraham's got that figured out. Yeah, if there's wickedness in the city, you could wipe everybody out, but would you really do that, God? Paul says, For as as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The reason justice is so important is because of Adam, the one guy that represented all of us. We're all guilty because Adam sinned. But we have the opportunity to receive God's forgiveness because one man didn't. And literally only one. This, is, this whole theological experiment that, that is taking place between Abraham and God reveals the truth of the gospel. One man's sin damned an entire human race, but one man's act of righteousness will redeem anybody who is willing to admit that you need the justice of God and the mercy of God by faith. You need it. You need God's justice condemning your sin and killing it and destroying it on the cross with Jesus. You need that. And you need the mercy of God saying, because my wrath is fulfilled in my son, I am ready and willing and excited to forgive you. Faith, the gift of faith comes when you recognize that you need both. And that's where grace comes in. Grace is, it's a gift. It's seeing that you needed the justice of God poured out against you, but didn't receive it because of the mercy of God. And so we also see in Romans chapter 5, verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. He's talking about Adam. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Now he's talking about Jesus. 
So by faith, so God's mercy received by faith in him who received God's justice upon himself. That's grace. That's grace that Jesus receives the justice to make it possible for you to receive mercy. And now by faith, when you believe that, when you, that's what it means to be a Christian. You finally say, yes, I need the justice of God and the mercy of God. I need it. And you accept it by faith. And now you become like God. You become his friend. And like Abraham, you begin to discover what God is like. Now God brings you in on the conversation, the circle of trust. Shall I reveal to Abraham what I'm like? Shall I now reveal to all of you what I'm like? Jesus said to his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master's doing, but I have called you friends. All that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. By faith you become literally, that's what's so outrageous about Christianity. You become, though a sinner, you become God's friend. Through the blood and death and resurrection of Jesus. So what Abraham discovered about God, only partially, right? Because Abraham's only getting a, a taste. What Abraham discovered in part, we by faith discover fully. God's justice was exercised on Jesus so that by faith we can know his mercy. By faith we learn and by faith we trust that God is just and that God is merciful. Let's pray. Lord, I am grateful that you have not poured out your wrath upon me and upon my friends here. Thank you that we are breathing your air. We have food and shelter and clothing. Regardless of what we have done in our life, regardless of the thoughts that have raced through our minds uh, in the last day, maybe even the last hour, you have not treated us as our sins deserve. Lord, I pray, uh, I pray that you would give us the faith uh, that we see in Abraham interceding for, pleading for the people in his life, pleading for the society in which he lived as your justice and mercy have abounded through your son. I pray that your justice and mercy would abound in us and in our church and to this world through us. In the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.